Hello, and thank you for joining us today at this Cato Virtual Policy Forum on what can help keep kids safe online, ideas for parents and policymakers. My name is Jennifer Huddleston, and I'm a Technology Policy Research Fellow here at the Cato Institute. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel of experts who have done a wide range of research on this topic. We've seen over the past year a growing amount of concern about the safety and well-being of children online, whether it's concerns about mental health, the amount of time young people are spending online, or even their physical safety. This has stimulated the interest of policymakers, and we've seen numerous legislative and regulatory proposals be debated at both the state and federal level. However, like many areas, civil society, not government intervention, likely holds the best solution. We've seen many of these attempts at government intervention be blunt tools that may create additional problems, particularly around ideas of free expression and privacy, online, and privacy for all individuals, including parents and children themselves. So today I'm joined by Maureen Flatley, a child welfare expert, Andrew Zach of the Family Online Safety Initiative, and Taylor Barkley of the Center for Growth and Opportunity to discuss what are some of the ideas out there that could actually help improve youth online safety and what might this mean for parents and policymakers who are concerned about this. So to start with, I'll start with you, Taylor. What should parents and policymakers look to do in response to the concerns they may have about youth online safety? Thanks so much uh, for having me, Jennifer, and uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. So uh, my name is Taylor Barkley, and I'm the Director of Technology and Innovation at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. And in my opening here, I just wanted to, I think, focus on the, the two audiences we're addressing in this panel, to the, uh, the parents and the caregivers and the policymakers. And I think to the, the parents and the caregivers first, and I intentionally use the word caregivers since often in this discussion, uh, minors, teens, kids uh, are often put in the context of parents, but not every child or minor has a parent to look to. They're in foster home situations. They're cared for by relatives, uh, sometimes grandparents. So uh, that's just one thing that I really think is important to keep in mind as we're discussing these issues, that every family and situation for uh, for children is different. So for the, for the parents and the caregivers, I will say, uh, don't freak out. It's it's okay. Uh, you can handle these issues. I think the media, politicians are throwing a lot of information uh, out there in the world that sounds pretty dire. Uh, there are studies released. It feels like uh, you know a couple every week that you know even I, as a full time technology policy analyst, don't have the time to read and uh, keep track of, and let alone a busy parent or caregiver out there. So. Uh, the importance for parents and caregivers is to focus on those within your care, those closest to you, the, the teens, the, the kids uh, who are in your, your families, in your household, or within your community, and working with, with them, asking questions, learning how they're using technology, and then adapting solutions to the problems uh, that arise uh, with those you care about most and who are closest to you. I also want to say to parents and caregivers that this isn't the first time that uh, we've worried about the, the impact of new technologies on, on children. This is throughout technological history. Each new technology brings to bear new concerns and uh, new issues that parents and caregivers should keep track of. 
uh, television, radio, even the novel, uh, when it was developed and popularized at the, the turn of the 1700s, had concerns that you know children were filling their heads with fanciful stories. Comic books uh, had the same concern, and even a few congressional hearings about uh, you know violence in comic books and appropriateness for children. And each time, we as a culture and society and parents and caregivers at the forefront have figured out solutions and how to deal with with new media, with new technologies. Uh, for the policymakers, I would you know say first of all, they've you you all have been active. Uh, uh, tech Policy Press counted 144 bills as of May in the states uh, focused on these issues, as Jennifer outlined. The President of the United States has mentioned uh, child safety and social media in the last two states of the union state of the union addresses before Congress. Government agencies are involved. The Federal Trade Commission and on and on have. Uh, promulgated rules, post asked for comment from industry and from society on uh, new rules aimed at protecting children online. So policymakers are active. And I think there are, uh, there are some good ideas out there. Uh, you know, maybe we can talk about this more, but out of Florida, I think it's HB 379, the K to 12 Technology Act that would equip uh, schools to provide digital literacy and training uh, for Age appropriate at age appropriate levels on how to be safe online, how to interact on social media for teen older teens, and how to date safely uh, using dating apps. And I think that's a good approach. But there are other more heavy handed ones that would ban minors from social media that involve constitutionally dubious efforts like age verification. Um, but since we're solutions focused in this panel, I, I do want to you know highlight the ways that policymakers can help, and those digital literacy bills are. are Good way to do it, and you know. Finally, I do want to say uh, for policymakers, you know, they can use their platform to raise awareness for parents and caregivers. Uh, that's the biggest, you know, issue that I run into when I'm talking with friends and family who aren't involved in tech policy, but they have kids and they want to help them stay safe on social media. Maybe they're concerned about what they're hearing about addiction and and dangers online, and uh, they often just don't know about the tools that are out there. And I know we'll talk about those more in the rest of the panel, but I think policymakers can use their public platform to just highlight the solutions and tools that already exist. They don't necessarily need to be writing new regulations, introducing new bills. I think they can be, since they're in their community, they have the platform, they have an outlet to traditional media and social media themselves just to raise awareness to these, these resources. And I think just to conclude my opening here, I will say, you know, we're, we're still early days uh, with ubiquitous mobile technology. The smartphone was introduced in 2007, and we just think about how much uh, that technology has changed in the hardware level and in the software level, the services that have arisen, and it's, it's new every couple of years, and uh, we're, we're still figuring it out. We're still in, in the, the early innings. So I think that goes back to how I, I started my remarks. And you know, we can all take a deep breath and just assess, you know, what's happening to those and among those closest to us. And I think that'll just give us uh, the right outlook and finding the solutions uh, to mitigate any potential harms and just kind of keep us going to the next next best thing. Thank you, Taylor. And I always love that example about the novel. One of my favorite kind of old headlines from from back in the day about the concerns around these new technologies are and it's an article about our kids reading too much and the problem about <laughs> yes. the about novel reading. And I, I think how many of my my friends with with kids would just love to be able to say, Oh yes, the problem is that my my child is reading too much. Maureen, totally. I know you you've long been a a child welfare 
expert and, and an advocate for, for improving child welfare, what would you say parents and policymakers should do if, if anything in response to the concerns they may have right now around the issue of, of youth online safety? Sure. Well, first of all, it, it's important to understand my orientation to the issues. I'm the daughter of an FBI agent who spent most of his career detailed to the Senate Racketeering Committee, where he worked with Congress to solve big problems involving organized crime. And I worked with him for many years before becoming involved in child welfare. I've spent the last 30 years almost exclusively focused on policy related to children. And I've seen a lot of really bad bills passed that purported to solve problems that were in effect really almost completely unenforced and had no value whatsoever. When I started to look at this issue, there was something that struck me right away. Uh, there were a couple of things that struck me right away. One was that as we look at the growing number of cyber tips as a metric, as I looked at the data underneath the cyber tips and looked at the arrest and conviction rates, I realized that we were not spending nearly enough time focusing on the importance of law enforcement to solve and attack this problem. When you look at 32 million cyber tips last year, with an arrest rate potentially hovering around three to five percent, that's incredible. No platform can, no matter how vigilant they are, can keep bad guys out of their world if there's literally no deterrent to engaging in the behavior. The conviction rates are even lower. And so as I think about all of the bills that have been introduced in Congress, there's only one really that I'll support and that's the Invest in Child Safety Act that Senator Wyden will reintroduce this year because it's the only bill that really looks at investing in law enforcement, increasing the capacity of law enforcement to attack these problems, to bringing those numbers down. As we watch the number of cyber tips increase dramatically, we're not seeing a parallel effort to bring the actual perpetrators of these crimes to justice. And I think that that's a tremendous problem. You know, I think back to when, when child pornography, as it was then referred to, was mostly transmitted through the mail, you didn't see anybody threatening to sue the post office. They hired more postal inspectors. And so when I see proposals to effectively blame tech companies for the harm being perpetrated on kids by, you know, actual criminals, I'm thinking, where's, where's the focus on the criminals? We, we really will never solve this problem in any meaningful way if we don't have a much more focused and effective approach to law enforcement. Senator Wyden's bill does that. Um, I think some of the other things that have been proposed are tremendously concerning. I'm no constitutional scholar, and I certainly don't have the academic credentials that some of my colleagues here do. But for instance, when I think about weakening encryption, I am an expert in child identity theft, and I see a tremendous amount of exploitation of children via identity theft now. Children are by far the most attractive targets for identity thieves. They have clean records. No one looks at them until the kids are adults. And bills like the Earned Act would be an absolute gift to identity thieves. So in effect, on the one hand, we're not doing enough to attack the real criminal activity and we have potentially significant unintended consequences with some of these bills that would actually enhance the criminal activity 
and trade one kind of exploitation of children for another. Um, you know, when I think about the role that tech companies play in all this, um, they, they are the significantly most profoundly important reporters of this activity of any sector. And yet, again, the Earned Act would purport to open them up to massive liability, thus potentially shutting down the only real meaningful reporting system we have now. So as I move through these bills and look at them one by one, I feel like there are a lot of people who are really well-intended putting forth ideas that they honestly believe are, are valuable. But I think that in almost every respect, they, they really not just miss the point, but they create more harm. So to policymakers, I would say everybody really needs to sit down and kind of connect the dots here in terms of what they're proposing. Yes, there are obviously tremendously troubling constitutional issues that some of these bills but when I look at these bills through the lens of, are they going to protect children? The answer is absolutely not. In some instances, they may actually compromise kids, compromise the reporting system, expand the, the real scourge of identity theft of kids, um, and really not spend any time or energy getting the people who are doing the real harm to children off the street, which then, in effect creates a revolving door that goes on forever. To parents, I would say, don't be afraid to parent around this issue. The government makes a terrible parent. We have seen in decades and decades of foster care in America, the government is, is the last place you want your children to be cared for. And so at the end of the day, a lot of the concerns that have been expressed about protecting kids online are actually best accomplished by parents and caregivers. And I'm so glad, Taylor, that you brought up the issue of children who aren't living with their parents because that is a significant population. But I think that parents need to understand that, first of all, there are tools out there that allow you to monitor what your children see online. You can absolutely limit the amount of time your kids spend online. I often tell my friends, you know, you wouldn't let your 12-year-old drive to the mall by themselves. Maybe you wouldn't really want them to have unfettered access to the internet. So in some ways, I view this as a problem that has been overcomplicated, sort of overthought, perhaps also in, invaded a little bit by people that have agendas that really aren't about protecting kids as much as they are opening up the door to being able to sue people and, uh, and gain revenue in that regard. And so ultimately, I think anything that we purport to do that does not include a major investment in law enforcement with some really concrete, actionable goals to be achieved is simply not gonna make a difference. One final point, 40 or 50 years ago, it was effectively legal to drive drunk and kill somebody with your car. And then Mothers Against Drunk Driver, Driving came along and demanded better results. And I think that we really need to do something along those lines today. I think the cyber tips should be a metric, but those cyber tips need to start going down. And we need to look at what we can do to make that happen. The tech companies have shown us where the problems are. We need to work with them to make it less prevalent and make it more effective. They're not the problem. The criminals are the problem. And 
Andrew, I know that the Family Online Safety Institute has a, a plethora of resources. One of the things that both of our, our previous panelists have brought up are parents and, and their ability to have these conversations. I certainly know that's something that, that you guys have looked into. But just to, to start off, what should parents and policymakers look to do when it comes to, to these concerns? Sure, thank you. And thank you for having me, Jennifer, and for this important panel. And I just wanted to make sure you guys can hear me because I was having some brief audio problems. So great, thank you. Um, to dive on in, I mean, for starters, the concerns are real and legitimate. Uh, there's been some recent studies that Taylor alluded to. So the American Psychological Association and the Surgeon General both recently released advisories about the mental health effects of adolescents being online and parents and policymakers should listen to both. The APA was very deliberate and thoughtful and nuanced. And you could tell right away from the first couple of lines where I wanna call out a couple of quotes. It says, using social media is not inherently beneficial or harmful to young people. It acknowledges the, both the pros and the cons. It also says that not all findings apply equally to all youth. Now, Taylor mentioned this, individuals are unique. Not all families look the same and some tools and recommendations work for some kids, but not others. They also acknowledge that adolescent development is gradual and continuous. This is really important as kids have different needs, interests, and capabilities at seven than at 17. So they're not just one monotonous uh, block that you can regulate all under 18s the same. Now, the Surgeon General is similarly thoughtful and nuanced, acknowledging the need for continued research and also says that there is a role for everyone to play. There is more that policymakers, families, and industry can do to improve online safety. And FOSI calls that the culture of responsibility. So, which is all about empowerment and agency for the user, for the families, for everyone involved. And one takeaway from these recent reports and our other work is that there is no one silver bullet, a one size fits all solution that will work for every kid and family in every state, in every country. Moving to governments a little bit, particularly states shouldn't ban entire apps from existing within their borders, nor cut off entire age groups from being able to access valuable information online. Not to mention the impact on free speech and expression with that approach. Some other regulatory ideas and recommendations are to be as technologically neutral and platform agnostic in their approach, especially with the expansion of new technologies like augmented and virtual reality, and more recently, the explosion of generative AI. Policy proposals must be technologically neutral so that they do not become out of date very quickly with the introduction of some new technology. Likewise, we don't want policymakers to choose industry winners and losers, signaling out one or two companies in negative or positive ways, but one that ideally encourages the promotion of new ideas and improvements in online safety tools. An interesting development that we're gonna watch closely is that the White House recently announced the creation of an interagency task force on kids' online health and safety that's being led by the Department of Health and Human Services. It will examine online risks of harm to minors and potential health benefits, recommend methods to address harms, develop a research agenda, 
and recommend best practices and technical standards for transparency reports and audits. Now, by spring of 2024, this is just the beginning of the process, so in a full year, they'll issue some voluntary guidance and policy recommendations, as well as a toolkit on safety, health, and privacy by design. It's good to see a coordinated whole-of-government approach to online safety, and one that will host stakeholder listening sessions with academics, researchers, psychologists, NGO experts, and industry as well. And to that end, FOSI has called for the creation of a chief online safety officer for many years now, someone to take the reins and be the coordinator and driver of online safety policy efforts across the whole administration. And this task force, if it proceeds in a nuanced and rational way, could be a step in the right direction. So concerns about online safety are real and some coordinated government efforts are a good initial response, especially if they are thoughtful and nuanced and based in evidence and research. And I'm excited to dive into more of this throughout the rest of this panel. Thank you. And thank you all for those kind of outlines of, of how you've been thinking about this issue recently. I'd like to remind our audience that you can submit questions for our panelists, either via the webpage, Facebook and YouTube, where you may be watching, or via Twitter using the hashtag Cato Technology. Additionally, there are some additional resources on the topic related to this panel as it uh, available on the webpage for the event. Now, I wanna turn to, to some questions for the, the panel as a whole. One of the things that we have seen in response to these concerns is a response from the free market in, in various ways, whether it's technology companies themselves or whether it's um, civil society groups or whether it's third party apps that are helping parents uh, be able to, to have the features that they want to have their children have a certain type of online experience. I was wondering if each of you could speak a little bit to what you've seen in terms of interesting responses from the private sector to provide parents and young people with the tools to navigate the internet in a, a safe and beneficial way. I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, I think this, yeah, I'm glad we're, we have a segment on this because there are a lot of tools out there. And I think, as I, as I mentioned before, uh, this is an area that uh, I, you know, if, it's a critique I have for the tech industry. I think the, the major, especially the major social media companies and uh, the bigger tech companies, that they would often have resources, oftentimes whole web pages and teams devoted to equipping uh, parents and caregivers, uh, but no one would know about them. You know, talking with uh, friends and family, I was just uh, consistently surprised at how little awareness there was, but, you know, just pointing to, you know, the existence of YouTube kids or uh, Google's uh, family safety resources page. Um, industry could have done and should have done a lot more years ago on, I think, raising awareness uh, to those tools. They had them, they were available. Um, and now we're seeing, I think probably because as uh, the, the rise in uh, discussion in media and from policymakers, uh, these larger tech companies putting serious resources behind uh, raising awareness for these tools. You know, Meta has done this, uh, pushing out uh, new uh, safeguards and tools for Instagram, for Facebook. Uh, Apple has sim done similarly with iOS features. Um, Xbox, I know, has integrated parental uh, 
controls and toggles. So booting up an Xbox for the first time brings up those settings. Um, I still think there's a long way to go, though, in, in helping parents and caregivers feel equipped and ready on how to navigate them. Um, and maybe just to quickly wrap up a few others, you know, my, my Wi-Fi router has parental controls uh, I could add uh, for my household. And it just goes on and on and on. And it, I think they're there if uh, parents and caregivers look for them in most cases. And I think more tools and resources will become available as the, as the days go on. Um, but, you know, I think there, there's definitely the more, more that can be done from industry in helping parents and caregivers feel like they, they know how to navigate all the settings and where to find them and, and all that stuff. Oh, Andrew, do you want to go? Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback for a minute. Um, and thank you, Taylor. Yeah, I wanted to start with parental controls as well. And I do want to acknowledge, again, that parental controls are not the silver bullet. From our research a couple of years ago, many parents are overwhelmed by the number of different mm -hmm. settings offered to them across plat apps, platforms, websites, and devices. And an unfortunately high number of parents admitted that their children helped them set up parental controls, which are not the most secure way to set up safeguards. But when parental controls are easy to find, easy to use, and apply to more than one app or website, like you mentioned, maybe at the router level or something like that, um, they can be really helpful and impactful in promoting online safety. That includes preventing communication with strangers, uh, limiting notifications and screen time hours, as well as viewing more age appropriate content. And also another important part of this is online safety tools. And so while notably the teenagers we interviewed were not as thrilled about parental controls, they were actually quite excited about and interested in online safety tools that platforms offer directly to them, to the users to keep themselves safe and have more positive online experiences. And these tools allowed them to customize their experiences, including reducing or strictly filtering comment section, uh, the ability to block or mute problematic users, and some of the same features included in parental controls. And industry has, as we mentioned, has invested in and expanded its offering of online safety tools to users. And that is a good thing that we should definitely continue to encourage. Um, quick plug to FOSI's Good Digital Parenting uh, work provides resources to families who have to help have these conversations about what online safety practices work best for them. Uh, and they are free and available on FOSI.org. Mo, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to say as a mom and a grandmother and an active consumer uh, and who was did quite a bit of work in the consumer protection area before I moved into child welfare. I think that the, the pressure from consumers to companies to improve their practices, to be safer, to be better, has demonstrably worked. You know, airlines really don't want their planes to crash all the time. The automotive industry pushed back on things like safety protections, the Clean Air Act, but, uh, but ultimately they, they came on board. And I think that when I look at the efforts to improve the child welfare community, for instance, which has largely been driven by a relentless number of expensive and unsuccessful lawsuits that have resulted in absolutely zero constructive improvement. I think that coming at the tech companies with an adversarial approach is exactly the wrong way to go about it. I think that there are plenty of people in the field who clearly want to do a good job and who want to serve consumers and who want to serve families. And so I think creating those feedback loops is incredibly important. And I think we're, and I think also we're all learning. I mean, I'm 74 years old. I can barely turn my laptop on, but you know, I have a 14 year old granddaughter that can explain everything to me. 
Um, but at the end of the day, you know, government regulation and especially some of the things that are being suggested are, I mean, first of all, they're probably unenforceable, but more importantly, um, you know, are they really going to work? I wanted to say two things, Andrew, to reflect on something you said. Um, although, you know, we clearly don't want to become a sort of a big government approach to solving problems like this. I am very concerned about the state laws. And I think that when you look at, again, you look at child welfare, which has traditionally been viewed as a state law issue, but bizarrely so, because dating back to the 1850s, the orphan trains and all billions of dollars in federal funds, they're fundamentally interstate activities that require a more coherent approach. And so I would absolutely uh, encourage state legislatures to keep their powder dry when it comes to attempting to solve these problems. Because again, most of what they're trying to do is really just performative, and I don't think it's going to be effective. The other thing I wanted to comment on is your comment, Andrew, about the chief, sort of chief technology officer. You know, one thing that Senator Wyden seeks to do is to establish basically a czar in the Justice Department to sort of establish consistent policy over this. And that is something that, in my view, is absolutely critical. That if we can have a, a federal office that is sort of the sort of repository, the clearinghouse of some of these ideas, I think we're going to end up with a much better result. But the minute we get, you know, a state legislator in one state or a, you know, a, a judge in another state starting to weigh in with ideas that really don't make sense and aren't enforceable, it's just going to create more chaos. Maureen, I actually want to go back to something you brought up in your opening statement. Um, one of the concerns that, that some parents have is related to child sexual abuse material online and particularly the ability of law enforcement to go after these horrible child predators. While I think that we all can agree that this is an absolutely egregious crime, we've seen proposals like the Earn It Act you mentioned come up that would really challenge the development of certain technologies like encryption. Do you feel that these proposals actually help solve that underlying child safety concern? And if not, what would help? Well, first of all, I am vociferously opposed to the Earned Act as a solution. It completely ignores the desperately needed investment in law enforcement. It purports to provide um, sort of civil justice for victims, but in fact, several concerns there. A huge number of victims are in foreign countries and have would have little or no ability to assert their rights in U.S. courts. Um, although the O.J. case might have been um, exemplar for some people, it is extremely difficult to secure a, a civil conviction, even with the lower evidentiary rules, without a criminal conviction. Um, especially when you look at the extraordinarily low numbers of successful criminal convictions. By the way, we need to know more about why that's not happening. Um, are there evidentiary problems? Um, I think there might be. In talking to criminal defense attorneys who are, even as we speak, representing people who have been charged with things based on cyber tips, we seem to have some problems there, and I'm not really uh, prepared at all to say what they are, but I can tell you right now, we don't know enough about it. And so, but I look at the Earned Act. We can encrypt 
gift to identity thieves, no investment in law enforcement, revolving door, sue tech companies. Well, sure, you want to sue tech companies because by ignoring the problem of taking the criminals off the street and lowering the, the, the threshold for liability for tech companies, it will be it well, it will become the lawyers' full employment act, that's for sure, because they will just sue tech companies endlessly because there's been no concerted effort to eliminate the underlying criminal activity. And finally, since most cyber coming from the tech companies, why in God's name would we want to create a structure of liability against the people that are reporting what we do know? I mean, it's, it's just mind boggling to me. And so, um, you know, the first thing I would do is probably rip up the Internet Act. But there, there really is here, uh, it's, it's a, we need to have a much more serious discussion about solving this problem in this country. The constitutional issues are for real, and we can't ignore that. But from a practical standpoint, what are we doing? We got to start by taking the bad guys off the street, period. And then we go from there. Taylor and Andrew, anything to, to add to that? Taylor, I, I think we're having some technical difficulties. Can you hear me now? Testing, testing. Yeah. All right. Uh, I hit the button by accident. So <laughs> Maureen's points are so good uh, in full agreement. I think um, in, in my the paper I wrote on this issue in January, uh, I recommended a triage approach for policymakers you know, addressing the clearest problems that have the clearest solutions and child sexual abuse material, CSAM for short, I think fits into the, the first, you know, category of problems to work on solving because, I mean, the problem is just, uh, I think one of the reasons, um, maybe it's not more prominent discussion, it's just so horrific. The details are so, so sad and it's uh, just evil, so many evil actions involving young, young children that, uh, it, it's it's not a it's it's not pleasant to look at at all and, and deal with, um, but it needs to be because of the the damage that's done to uh, children and generations and whole communities here. And I think we we probably only know the tip of the iceberg. Um, so it's important that companies are reporting instances of uh, CSAM material. Uh, Wall Street Journal, you know, highlighted the Stanford report recently on Instagram and the self generated. Uh, child sexual abuse material that was on Instagram and other social media platforms. And I think that kind of reporting shouldn't be uh, vilified. That was one thing I found uh, frustrating about the, the Facebook files um, in the context of, uh, you know, app addiction or and social media mental health. Here we had, you know, internal study from Instagram uh, looking at how its use impacted its, its users, its young teen users. And when that went out to the press, everyone said, aha, see, we have the tech companies. They know what's, it was bad and what's going on. But I think because of that backlash, we're going to see less transparency from companies. We're going to see them doing fewer of those studies because it really hasn't helped them at all um, when they should be doing more of it. They should be looking at how their products impact their users um, and especially for like for the, the worst uh, material. So I would also, you know, in the solution set for policymakers endorse more resources for law enforcement and dealing with child sexual abuse material um, and prosecution as well. I think that's that's where we should be focusing our efforts first and most vociferously. 
um, and energetically when it comes to uh, safety online for, for teens and kids. Piggyback on what Andrew, you just said, I haven't, uh, I haven't read the, um, that uh, Instagram Wall Street Journal piece in a couple of days, but one thing that I remember that struck me about it is that the researcher basically said, well, we don't really have enough law enforcement, so the company should just police themselves. And I thought to myself, mm. okay, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> let's just think about that for a minute because yeah. if the companies, if, if that talk about an admission of defeat, if the companies are 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 enforcing themselves, you know, that opens a whole other can of worms too. And so there needs to be a certain amount of healthy tension between the industry and law enforcement. And so just as you want to create a deterrent effect for the people who are actually exploiting children, you also want to let the companies know that we're not letting the fox guard the hen house. There could be, in fact, a downside for you as well. And so this hmm. failure to, un to, to embrace a law enforcement-driven solution, is just a, I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. So Andrew, I'll, yeah, I'll jump in as well. Yeah, I'll jump in briefly as well. Um, Mo especially expanded on this of sort of the convoluted nature of Earn It, where, you know, it's it's talking about CSAM content. It's talking about encryption. We haven't even talked about, it's talking about updating cyber reporting and uh, to the, uh, reporting to the cyber tip line, but also the earning of Section 230 immunity, which we haven't even and shouldn't dive into. But so it, it's a lot going on um, and something that, I like to ask people I'm working with on online safety, uh, in this case, policymakers, is what problem are you trying to solve? Um, so getting more of a narrowly tailored and specific and focused bill uh, is a good idea. Generally, FOSI focuses in the harmful but legal area of online safety. So defer to other experts like Nick Mick um, on the illegal content like CSAM. Mm. But as Mo mentioned, we have endorsed Senator Wyden's Invest in Child Safety Act uh, and think it's a practical, thoughtful way to help fund and empower law enforcement, target perpetrators, and actually support survivors as well. Before I turn to our audience Q&A um, questions that have come in, I wanted to, to take a step back for a moment. Oftentimes, when we're talking about young people online, we hear a lot of things that about the harms, about the risk, about mental health or, or physical safety or, you know, concerns about our, our young people on their phones too much today. But there have also been significant benefits to young people of the connected age, particularly when you look back over the, the last three years when many activities had to shift from in-person to online. Could each of you speak a little bit about what parents and policymakers should consider about not the harms of youth online use, uh, youth online activity, but about the benefits of young people being online? Yeah, I'll, I'll dive right in because we have an example in our very own family. Um, when my now 18 year old granddaughter was confronted with COVID living in a semi-rural Maryland community and going to school online, she decided that she was going to accelerate her education. And so she became involved in a program where she could finish all four years of high school and two years of college in four years. She just graduated from high school and community college. 
She's going uh, to Pace University in Manhattan with a full scholarship. She engaged in breathtaking and expansive advocacy online with friends that she met all over the country, all using her computer, sitting in her bedroom uh, during COVID. And so, you know, we obviously couldn't be prouder of her. There are a lot of kids like her. And I think that when we think about the mental health issues, and I do, I do have some concerns about the level of uh, sort of attribution of mental health problems to the internet uh, when it comes to kids, because there are a lot of things driving mental health issues for kids. But the internet is also a way for kids to receive treatment for mental health issues and positive content. And then finally, in, uh, in my world, uh, if you're a child who's trapped in an abusive home, if you're a child who's living with severe neglect, if you're a child who is not allowed to go to school, sometimes the internet is your savior. And so this push to have uh, severe restrictions on whether or not kids can have access to the internet, to me, uh, is a very tricky double-edged sword. But I think that to your point, Jennifer, there are a lot of amazing things going on with young people using technology uh, in ways that most of us could never have dreamed of it. And I, and I think we need to focus on that more. Yeah, I think the, the first group I think of and would suggest, you know, policymakers think about are the, the marginalized youth, uh, the marginalized yeah. kids, uh, yeah, the kids who had abusive homes, the kids maybe who are LGBTQ plus, uh, and dealing with maybe being alone in their community. Uh, and, you know, the story after story of, you know, kids in those positions finding community uh, because of the internet, because of social media, even algorithmic recommendations, uh, finding mental health resources. Um, and, you know, just the entertainment and educational options out there for kids. I know that's one thing I love doing with my four-year-old. We were we were talking about different kinds of snakes the other day on the porch. And thanks to modern digital technology, I could just pull up photos and videos of snakes and pulled up a, a man hand, safely handling, I think it was safe, as safe as you can be, a king cobra. And I remember when I was a kid, it was, you know, popping in maybe a National Geographic tape, uh, one of a few that we'd owned, and maybe we picked up some from the library, but just this whole new world where you know, at the drop of a hat uh, in the context of, you know, me with a smartphone for now, because my, my, my son is very young, uh, going on this educational journey with him. And I, I hope, you know, exemplifying the, the positive use case here for, for on, you know, using the internet, uh, using social media tools. Um, so I think that's, that's what I would highlight. And I, I, too, I, I would say in this segment, you know, ask, ask questions of the, the teens and kids in your life. What, what games are they playing? What, what forums are they a part of? Who are they talking with when they're playing Minecraft or Roblox or the latest uh, console game? I think there, and just keep asking questions and then try it out for yourself. I think that's, that's one very underrated aspect of this discussion, um, asking questions and listening to the, the, the young people that we're trying to help. Thanks. And as I mentioned, we've had, oh, Andrew, I'm sorry, I, I skipped over you. I assume no, you have. I'll, I'll jump in very quickly. Um, a lot of it's already been mentioned and both of you, thank you for sharing your personal experiences. I mean, yeah, access to information, learning, finding community, expressing themselves artistically and even financially. Um, a lot of privacy groups have been very against some of these bills and some of these online safety bills. Um, part of that is 
we mentioned parental controls. Parental controls are a good idea, but it's important to make sure there's some privacy involved as well. And they don't turn everything into surveillance controls where the parent can see every communication that the child does, especially if it's up to 18, a 17 and a half year old, something like that. Uh, as well, Taylor mentioned um, a lot of LGBTQ plus groups have been very against some of these bills as well, uh, whether that's putting everything on parental permission. And so if they don't have a parent to consent to getting online, uh, they are banned from it or really ambitious uh, state attorney general from opposite politically motivated states that get to define what is harmful to a minor. And that could be in really different ways and result in different kids having different rights in different states. Um, one more thing for, for families, um, sort of moving beyond the sort of time limits and maybe something like level limits or whatever platform they're engaging in. Uh, it's important to know that a hard stop, you have three more minutes before we sit down to dinner, might not be enough time to complete whatever they're doing, or maybe they need to complete it in one minute. And then the next one is another 10 minute level or something like that. So having a little bit of flexibility related to what Taylor mentioned about asking what they're actually doing online. Is it a game? Is it levels? Do, is there, when is the natural break point instead of an arbitrary turning it off in the middle of a boss battle or something like that uh, for video games? So yeah, having these conversations is a great part of it. I want to turn now to our, our audience Q&A. And, and to start with, I'm going to kind of combine several questions that, that came in, in in different forms. But they all, in my opinion, boil down to, to this issue of we've seen a response, we've seen a development of parental controls. But at the same time, we've seen a lot of pressure from Washington and state capitals on these companies. Um, how much of the kind of development of these tools do you think is a response to consumer demand or an awareness of issues that may be occurring? And how much of this is an attempt to perhaps avoid regulation or, or to, uh, to even, you know, in some cases have regulation that, that would favor current players as opposed to, to developing um, industry? So I guess the question is, what do our panelists see as the balance between are we actually seeing a, a positive response? Are we seeing uh, the, the free market respond? Or is this just a case of kind of informal regulation by, by government pressure? Well, I think the companies, and I know a lot of these companies, I, I think a lot of them are just pursuing free market opportunity. They see a problem to be solved and they want to have uh, want to take a swing at it and you know obviously for some people they also want to make some money which is not illegal um i don't think at least as far as i can tell much of it is really a cynical effort to bypass regulation i think a lot of it is just the incredible creativity of the free market which i personally as a parent and a consumer feel is incredibly healthy gives me a choice i would prefer to work with someone like that than have the government come up with some idea that's poorly executed that and perhaps has a lot of unintended consequences. So I think in general, companies like Bark, for example, Bark is a good example in my view, um, developing a tool, it's a terrific tool, it's available now, it's not expensive. Uh, from my view, we don't need the government to be solving most of these problems because a lot of these problems 
can be mitigated with readily available consumer products that are just right. I wonder it, if it could be both, you know, replying to consumer demands and regulation compliance. Um, I mean, for example, the UK's age appropriate design code, when that came into effect two years ago, which is insane to say, um, a lot of companies right before that happened updated some of their features and services in terms of uh, making it towards coming into compliance with that code. But they were generally agreed upon good for users of, uh, you know, for especially for teen accounts, not having late night push notifications or developing uh, more privacy by default type of things. So not to say that everything about that code is, is good and should be applied everywhere. But um, I think that's an example of, hey, this regulation's coming, industry act where they could and took some low hanging fruit uh, pretty easily. But also at FOSU, we don't like to ever tell our members to compete on online safety, but maybe innovating new tools that are an advantage for users and bring users to your platforms, uh, you know, between different companies. Uh, if one has stronger safety controls, users might gravitate towards it and then another company would have to reply. So that's not a bad thing either. I would, my, yeah, my answer would be kind of more like Andrew's. There is a, it's a mixed bag. I think we, we're in the midst of this, I think, cultural discussion as, you know, as I would put it. I think shifting cultural values, you know, I think we're, we, the royal we, as, you know, I just say American, uh, the culture in the United States, you know, asking questions about, well, should we give a fully loaded open access supercomputer smartphone to a 12 year old, to a 10 year old, to a 16 year old? And I think that's an appropriate question to ask. And I, I, I wouldn't see a future, say, 10, 40 years uh, from now where, uh, you know, the equivalent of a full, full blown smartphone to a, a teenager would be uh, maybe like giving, you know, a, a car, <laughs> car keys to a 12 year old now. I think shifting cultural norms are a very, very good way of mitigating harms. Uh, it's slow though, and it doesn't scratch the itch for, for policymakers who are, you know, waiting on voters and will, you know, need voters to elect them to office. Um, but I think ultra, ultimately cultural norms are, are, the, are the best way to solve these issues. Our net, oh, sorry, Maureen. Our, our next audience question is one that alludes to something Taylor brought up in an, an earlier answer, which is for parents or caregivers who are looking for these resources, who are trying to figure out how to navigate this, are there any specific resources that you would recommend for those parents and caregivers that are trying to educate themselves on what is available and determine what's best for their families? I'm gonna start with you, Andrew, because I have a feeling you might have a, a couple of resources to, to point folks to. Sure, no, absolutely, thank you. So obviously we'll say foci.org. Um, we have, as I mentioned earlier, our whole good digital parenting initiative and work where it's some are like safe family safety agreements where they're a checklist that you can go through as a family and decide here are our rules that make sense for us. Maybe it's leaving phones not in bedrooms overnight. Maybe it's uh, some sort of family pairing tool in an app that allows more visibility between uh, the parents or guardians and the kids. So there's a whole uh, way to have conversations and have these conversations as a family and agree 
on what the terms are. Um, when you empower and give agency to these kids, it's great to see what they come up with and what they do want to abide by to keep themselves safe. Um, we also have um, a PowerPoint slide as well that is sort of our like full program to go through that we have talked about at PTA meetings and with educators. Um, and then, you know, we're not alone in this space. Common Sense Media works pretty hard on um, tools directly to parents, but also for educators. Um, and then, I mean, as Taylor mentioned, with some states starting to mandate media literacy education, uh, media literacy, there's a couple major organizations that um, have their own tools, but also talk about um, regulation and guidance as well for any stakeholders. But um, we, it's important to make sure that any media literacy around this is nuanced and considers the pros and the cons, not just based in fear, fear-based language or that type of thing. We do want to empower um, users, young users especially. I think the, the empowerment note, I'll, I'll just emphasize that. I think that's the that's the tone to strike when talking about this this issue. And I think in the context of say, you know, uh, time spent on social media apps or smartphones or video games. I think it's it's a different um, issue for uh, child sexual abuse material, um, and I think there's a uh, you know th there's easy solutions here too. I mean, just search on any search engine. I think the the company manufacturing the device or service you're using, and you know parental controls or you know child safety, and I think you'll find uh, quick resources there on how to activate certain things or you know, whether the, the device or software has as those tools available. And maybe that's, I would suggest that's a good idea before purchasing or integrating any new tech into uh, the lives of, of kids or minors in your care. Uh, see what, what services and tools are available. Some charge an extra fee, and that's just something to be aware of. Um, but all these groups that Andrew mentioned, they all have great links and resources to, to click through to to find these, these solutions. They're definitely out there. It just takes a little bit of hunting and then a little bit of, you know, I'd say 10 minutes, just allocate that time if you have it. I know it cuts into the, maybe some free time or chores, but uh, 10 minutes to poke around a little bit and figure it out. It's, it's definitely doable. Maureen, did you have anything to add? Well, I'm a huge fan of Bossies because I, I feel like they are constantly reinforcing what I think should be a core message in all of this, which is families should be talking about this and parents should be talking to their kids about this. And this is a negotiation and it's a, it's a way to help your kids mature and grow and to develop an, a, a dialogue that's built on trust. And um, again, you know, as I have said many times already in this conversation, the government makes a lousy parent. The government is not going to be the entity that solves these problems. We're going to be the people that solve these problems. Hmm. Families are going to be the people that solve these problems at the end of the day. And so it's all about empowerment. It's all about communication. I want to thank all of our panelists for, for joining us today. We are going to, to have to start to, to wrap up here. So I, my last kind of question for you guys is just what would you say is the most important thing? I know it's hard to narrow down to, to one uh, when it comes to parents and policymakers who are concerned about youth online safety, what should they be asking themselves about this issue? And then also if there's anywhere that our audience can find out more about your work on this topic. And I'll start with Andrew. 
Sure, thank you. Um, so again, foci.org, F-O-S-I.org. We've got resources for uh, parents and policymakers, uh, as well as access to our research that I referenced earlier in upcoming work, um, including some upcoming age assurance work that we're doing with Taylor and CGS. So we'll see you at the end of the month. Um, but also, so speaking of Taylor, something he mentioned at the beginning, to take a breath, to, to, to not automatically react. We've seen some really bad state bills that have been really reactionary and some have passed into law. We've also seen bad overreactions from parents and families. In our research, one, um, <laughs> one father proudly told us about how he found a way to clone his 17-year-old daughter's phone without her knowing just so he could observe everything and make sure she was safe. We had huge problems with that. So um, taking a breath, uh, not immediately overreacting, um, bringing nuance and thoughtfulness to online safety discussions, acknowledging that there's no one silver bullet, people are different, families are different. Um, and we should also learn from our friends around the world. Uh, online safety concerns are valid and it is encouraging to see so much attention research and discussion about proposed solutions. Thank you, Andrew. Maureen, same question to you. Well, I think the number one thing from my perspective, as I've mentioned already, is that we need to be demanding that policymakers make an investment in law enforcement, that we make clear goals set about arrests and convictions and taking these people off the street. In the 1960s, we had a strike force that broke up organized crime and had a massive impact. We need to do the same thing with this. This is, at the end of the day, a law enforcement problem. Children are being exploited and injured and traumatized, and no amount of constitutional arguments are going to address the real harm being done to kids if we cannot take the bad guys off the street, number one. And as far as uh, my work is concerned, I continue to work on a variety of child welfare and child protection issues. And I'm uh, delighted to have spent quite a bit of time on Capitol Hill with people like Andrew, and I'm continuing that work now. So law enforcement is the answer, at least a large part of it. Thank you. And Taylor, to, to you. For parents and caregivers, ask questions of the teens, the kids in your life about the tech they use. For policymakers, triage the problems, the, the clear known problems like child sexual abuse material that have clear solutions, and then move on to the vaguer problems with vaguer solutions like social media and mental health issues. And for more of my work and the work of the Center for Growth and Opportunity, uh, I have a biweekly newsletter uh, called Now and Next, you can find on Substack. My Twitter handle, Taylor D. Barkley, um, releasing research and uh, more of uh, content like this. And of course, the June 29th event we're hosting here in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill on the on age verification policy uh, with FOSI, with Future Privacy Forum, UNC Tech Policy Center, and the R Street Institute. So hope to see some of you there. Thank you. And in addition to thanking all of our panelists, I would like to thank all of our attendees who joined us live during today's event. We had a lot of questions come in and I apologize that we could not get to all of them. A video recording of this event will be available on Cato's website, as will be additional resources related to this topic. 
Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And I hope to continue this discussion because there certainly are a lot of topics going on in this space that we didn't even get to touch on today. Thank you so much.